What's up, everybody? This is the Disciple Makers Podcast brought to you by discipleship.org. I'm your host, Dave Stovall, and I'm so excited for you to hear the episode today. We've got Shidanke Johnson. He's a disciple-making movement leader in Sierra Leone. Curtis Sargent, who leads a movement in South China, along with Josh Howard, who leads a movement in India. To say this is a powerhouse episode would be a complete understatement. Paul Hugebart of Renew.org has an open conversation with these three gentlemen, and it's completely fascinating hearing them swapping stories from these movements that are happening in different countries and listening to them by encouraging us to pray and to fast and to have crafty attitudes and mentalities while we are trying to win people with the gospel here in North America. Let this episode encourage you and challenge you and give you hope as we make disciples here in North America with the intention of seeing a movement like this here. Enjoy the episode. Thank you guys for joining us for for what I think is, I mean, this is going to be an incredible conversation. I'm so thankful and honored uh, at the opportunity to have these three guys together uh, to share with us a little bit. I know, well, I know, I know. Can, can we just be honest? One of these three is not like the other. Can we? Can we just be? Can we be real for a minute? Uh, you guys, you guys, through the power of God working, are all doing uh, amazing things that that we are, you know, honestly in in awe in many ways. But we want to see what's been happening there happen here, and, and I know you guys share that heart, and so that's part of the conversation we're going to have. Um, this is uh, this is a track that is uh, sponsored by Renew. And so just real quickly, you saw the ad uh, about Renew right there at the end of the last session. Um, at Renew, we, we very much highly value good theology. We want to see the teachings of Jesus fuel disciple-making. And so we believe the teachings of Jesus are at the heart of disciple-making because we're making disciples of Jesus. So if there are some other teaching that we're trying to, uh, to, to give to people, then it's maybe not we're not making disciples of the right guy. So we want to make disciples of Jesus as much as we can. So that is really our heart. I know that's the heart of these three guys as well. And so... Um, I want to tell you just real quickly kind of the format that we're going to engage in. Um, obviously, we, you know, with just an hour and with these three guys, we're, we're only going to be able to go so deep. And so I've got a set of questions that I have. Um, if there is a burning question that you have, we'll try, to, we'll try to see if we can spend some time with it as much as possible. Um, but we want to get to know these three guys just a little bit. Maybe you've been in one of the sessions before or you haven't. You saw all three of these guys would be here, and so you wanted to be in here. So I want to take uh, just real quickly... Um, can't tell your whole story, and you're going to get to tell it in just a minute anyway, but yeah. if you tell just a little bit about who you are and the work that you've been doing, and maybe what what is driving you, what, what calls you into this. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, my name's Josh. I, I moved to India 15 years ago um, with a big, audacious vision to shake the nation of India with the gospel. Had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and uh, you'll hear this in, in the next main session, but honestly... The truth is, I like I had never made a disciple in my life when I moved to India. I'd preached a lot of sermons, done a lot of stuff, had never pre I, I had never really made a disciple. And so the Indian believers honestly taught me how to follow Jesus. That's what actually happened. And so um, I, I won't get into all the details there, but a few years in, I was sitting with our Indian team. I was the only American guy. They're they're all killing it, doing amazing, and we're dreaming of reaching the nation. And we realized that the traditional ministry that we were doing of adding believers and adding churches and things like that was just never going to reach the nation of India. We weren't going to be able to do it. And so I I remember one guy threw out a number and realized if we did that, it would take us 13,000 years to reach India. And I'm like, we got to do something different if we're going to see this nation impacted. Like, seriously, people are dying every day without the gospel. Um, I know Curtis has been a mentor of mine for about 10 years now, um, and uh, he had a similar revelation in China, realizing that, man, there's, there's people that are going to be, you know, dead without the gospel, and we can't reach them all if we don't do something different. And so we began to really pray and fast and seek the heart of God, and about that time, I stumbled across Ying Kai in China, and uh, Curtis actually trained Ying, um, and uh, him and his wife, Grace, long story short, they really had a vision to multiply disciples, and Ended up in 10 years, seeing over a million people baptized. I don't know the exact numbers. Over a million people baptized and about 200,000 or so churches started in that 10 years. They've done way more than that since then. And man, tears flew in, flew in my eyes. I shut the book and I said, God, if you can do that in China, I know you can do it here. 
And uh, with T4C in one hand, I never heard of DMM CPM. I never heard of Curtis or Shadonke or any of these guys. I, di I didn't know anything I was doing. So with T4C in one hand and the Bible in the other, we started trying to follow the footsteps of Jesus in order to see our nation shook with the gospel. And so we started slowly multiplying disciples. And long story short, Paul, mm -hmm. in the last 10 years, uh, by God's grace, we've seen somewhere between 18 and 20,000 churches started in the last 10 years um, through ordinary... <laughs> through ordinary everyday people empowered by the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. It's so easy in moments like this, guys, for some American guy to stand up or take credit for something that God's done. It is Jesus empowering his people in order to shape nations. And uh, just last year alone, 8,000 churches were started. Over 56,000 people came to Jesus. Um, and uh, it's all through ordinary everyday people getting empowered by his spirit with simple tools to go make disciples who multiply. And so that's our heartbeat, man. We want to see Jesus glorified. We want to see no place left in the nations without the gospel. That's what drives us. Yeah. We want to see the Habakkuk vision accomplished, like the waters cover the sea, the glory of God will cover the earth. Uh, that's what we're after, man. So every people, every place, that's what we're going after. And uh, it's been a ride, man. Uh, it's been yeah. good. Yeah. Yep. Shadonke, same thing, two or three minutes if you can. Yeah, I think um, I was involved in traditional church planting for a few years of ministry in the northern part of Sierra Leone, uh, which was 99.9% Muslims. And, uh, but I fell in love with them. I loved, you know, I realized that the people were loved by God, uh, even though they were lost and they needed a savior. And so that was my passion. And we started working among them until 2005. I was challenged by um, David Watson. I met him and I was really challenged and that changed my perspective of how to be involved in, in making disciples to make disciples and with that for us we have been always my heart has been going for the high-hanging fruits and it has been the muslims and the african traditional religionists and just finding where they are and through prayer going there create relationship and over the years we have seen some of the most radical muslims come to jesus you know those who have killed that we have people in our movement who have killed so many Christians, they could not even count how many have killed. Today, they are themselves are being persecuted now because they are following Jesus. We've seen voodoo priests, we've seen witch doctors come to the saving knowledge of the Lord. And we have seen nations being transformed because we also look at discipleship, you know, as a way of really touching nations. And so we, we raise disciples in every sphere of life to go into their own oikos and begin to make disciples, to make disciples. Mm -hmm. So you find that we have people from the army, the police, you know, coaches, wherever you go, every sphere of life, we try to influence them with the gospel because we believe that's a strategy to take the nations. Mm -hmm. That's Thank good. Okay. That's so good, bro. Yeah. Curtis. Yeah. Um, well, I um, had a little bit of an advantage growing up in that my parents were missionaries, so I grew up through elementary school in Taejon, South Korea, and middle school and high school in Taejong, Taiwan. In the summer of my freshman year, after my freshman year in high school, um, I was at an all-night prayer meeting with some friends and felt a very clear call to sort of least reach peoples. So most of my life has been focused on, um, particularly on unreached, unengaged people groups and trying to see initial work, you know, started among them. And um, so in that context is how, you know, we got started in China and then out of desperation, realizing the people group we were targeting, you know, how, how big the task was is kind of what drove us to uh, try to figure out multiplicative approaches. And so then we've been focusing on that multiplication among disciples and believers in least reached peoples, essentially. So that's kind of been the theme of my journey. Excellent. Thank you, guys. So you can see uh, we got definitely a very well-qualified panel to kind of talk through and help us understand maybe how we can embrace some movement principles here in the United States that may lead to the development of movements. Uh, certainly we can say there are already some beginning uh, phases of movement that we're seeing, which is very encouraging. 
for us as we're trying to get our minds around uh, what matters most in movement, could each of you guys, and it may be that you've got some shared principles in this, but could each of you guys give us one or two things that you think would be most important? If you could share what you think is most important for us to know, for us to learn from what you've learned over the years, could you give us maybe one or two things that would help us as we look to take steps forward ourselves? And you can go in any order. Okay. Or, or you can go, Josh. Okay, okay. all right. You've been voluntold. Okay, so. okay. all right, Von, voluntold. Yeah. I would say a couple, th I mean, there are a lot of principles, guys, that, and, and here's the cool thing about principles. I had a mentor many years ago that said, methods are many, principles are few, methods change often, principles never do, okay? Mm -hmm. These are biblical principles that are 2,000 years old that will work anywhere in the world. There could be a hundred different methods, but the principles are what we need to focus on for a North American context. And then you can contextualize it and come up with whatever tools or whatever. Here are a couple of the big ones that I would say for us, and, and these, I'm sure, I know, I know one of these is true for all of us. I, I think they all will be, but, but let me share two, okay? Number one, we created a radical culture of prayer and fasting, okay? I promise you, now you can, <laughs> I don't know if I can make these promises. Jesus promises you, you can blame him if it doesn't count, okay? I promise you. If you prayed as much as our brothers and sisters in India prayed, or in Sierra Leone, or in China, if you were on your knees as much as them in the presence of Jesus, you would see a move of God. You would. And so people are asking all the time, Josh, why is this happening in India, or China, or Sierra Leone, or Africa, or wherever? And it's like, we spend like five minutes a day, most of us, praying, or if that, okay? And so we created a radical culture of prayer and fasting. My best multipliers guys in India, they're fasting at least two to three days a week, and they're praying two to three hours a day, at least. We're talking minimum here, okay? Like Wesley once said, which blows my mind, he said, if I don't pray at least three hours a day, Satan has won the day that day. Mm -hmm. And if I want to see God do something that day, I've got to pray more than that. That's what he said. Just to break even, I've got to pray three hours a day. Now, I'm not, listen, if you're not praying at all right now, guys, do not hear a prescription here. I'm not saying you need to start there. You'll give up. Start with five minutes and then move it to 10, then move it to 15. Work your way up, okay? Like, but start somewhere. So radical culture of prayer and fasting, number one. Number two, okay, it is equipping and releasing the priesthood of all believers. We are all equipped by God and called by God to be out there sharing our faith and making disciples, okay? So we, we had to awaken the priesthood, ordinary, everyday people, and give them simple tools that they could use that could go out there, share their faith, make disciples, and then start simple churches in their homes. And so by creating a radical, prayer, uh, a radical culture of prayer and fasting and awakening the priesthood and empowering and releasing them, releasing authority, releasing power through those two things. Now, there's a lot more principles, guys, okay? Mm -hmm. But those two things probably for us would have been some of the, some of the most important. Can you give yeah. us a quick kind of nutshell just in case anybody's not familiar with that idea of awakening the priesthood of all believers exactly what you are referring to? Yeah, so, um, so, so all throughout the New Testament, it, it, you know, it's, it's talking about how every single person is, is a priest in God's eyes. We're all, there's no professional laity divide in the New Testament. If, if you're a disciple, you're called to be a disciple maker, right? So we see every believer a disciple and every disciple a disciple maker, right? And every disciple maker a church planner. You can be. Not all of them will do it, but you can be, okay? And so the idea is, is that all of us, okay, are called by God and given permission by God to be out there doing the ministry all the time. And so we give them simple tools, like I said, to give them the, the how, okay? and we model it for them, we show them what it looks like, and then release them in order to go do it. So these, we're saying, hey, everybody can go baptize. Everybody can go share their faith. Everybody can make disciples. Everybody gets to play, okay? Everybody gets to play. It's not professional athletes on the field and 40,000 people in the stands. Everybody gets to be on the field. And so that's the idea of the priesthood. It's all of us in the game together. Traditional ministry is a few people doing all the work, Movement is a lot of people doing a little bit of the work all at the same time. Okay, that's what it is. That's the priesthood. That's what it does. That does that clear yeah. things up? Okay, yeah. good, good. I think added to what uh, he's saying is that for us, everything is grounded in the word. Yeah, the word is very important. Yeah, I mean, you can't, there's no other text. If as much as possible, we tell people to avoid other texts, let the word be the word. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the word of God plus nothing else. Mm -hmm. You know, so the word is very, very important. 
added to what you say. So yeah. all the discipleship process is all grounded in the word of God. Yeah. And so you take that helps you to take the people back in, into the world. If the people cannot read and write, you have so many tools, you know, faith comes by hearing and all those things helping the people. Uh, as we were talking about uh, uh, memorizing scriptures, we have people in the movement, literally, in the local languages. They have memorized almost the whole Old New Testament. Of her, they can they can start with Matthew and they will go. We have kids every year, like in June, which is the day of the African child. We have a time that we do scripture memorization. We have all these children, depending on the areas. Every year, the least child will do 70 memory verses. Some of them will do 200, 250. It's just part of it. It's just the word. Letting the word sink in the heart of the people in their own local languages. And so the word is so important that if you stand before them in any of these churches that are planted and you go off the word, I'm telling you, somebody's going to walk up to you at the end of the set. Where did you get that? What is the reference? You're off the word because they know the word of God. I have seen, I mean, senior pastors of big churches here, they go there in their teaching. And people, they will say some things, and people ask them, can you show us a reference in the Bible? <laughs> you know, one of the pastors, you know, he told me, he said, I have my double masters. He said, I'm so ashamed that I came to Africa only for people in the villages to challenge my theology. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm talking Because his theology was challenged. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he, when he came back, yeah. that really changed his whole mindset about church. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So the people are grounded in the world so much. Mm -hmm. And, and, and also is to have what we call a mindset of multiplication. Yeah. You know, in disciple making, multiplication is a love language. It's a love language of disciple making, to multiply. If you're in it, then it's not about just having one, it's about multiplying. Mm -hmm. So it's a love language. So you are focused on multiplying. Now we normally tell people, what do you multiply? You multiply groups. You start with groups. You multiply disciples. You multiply leaders. You multiply churches. For us, we multiply intercessors. These are things that you should focus on multiplying in every area because it's an ongoing thing so that it will not depend on you. It will not depend on one leader. So it is, it is so important that um, it's grounded in the world and you have this mindset of multiplication, constant multiplication. In schools, in universities, I mean, wherever you go in soccer fields, we have coaches. You just multiply. Yeah. When we, for example, I wanted to target the coaches. So there was a soccer team in my city called Bow Rangers. So what I did was that I just decided to join them. In the morning, I went for practice, to practice with them. I mean, the, the coach said, he, he knew I'm a pastor and he's looking at me. He said, this is a city team. I said, yes, I'm here to practice. <laughs> so I started going through all the drills that they go through. And when they put us in small team doing exercise, and these guys will tackle me, I will go down, they will be laughing. But I know my end goal. I know exactly why I'm there. So then one day, you know, the coaches, after exercise, I took them, we went out, and I bought what we call, we call it soft drink, you call it soda, yeah. I bought soda for them, and we are talking. I said, do you know that I'm also a coach? And the guy said, a coach? I said, yes, I'm a coach. He said, what type of coach? I said, I'm a spiritual coach. <laughs> he had never had the word spiritual coach. I said, so I want us to do a deal here. You will coach me physically, I will coach you spiritually. And that's how we had to strike a deal. And with time, the first coach got saved and he was baptized. I said, now turn around and you go for the other coaches. By the time we realized it, all the five coaches in that team, in the city, all became followers of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And now I told the coaches, you go for the players. Mm. And in less than no time, 80% of the players who are Muslim up became followers of Jesus. They became the most behaved team, and now they started to win matches. They will pray, they will fast. <laughs> so the thing here is that it's intentional multiplication. We, yeah. There are prisoners who are coaching prison officers in the prison. Prisoners leading prison officers to the Lord. Because you need to have that multiplication mindset. Yeah, that's so good. That's good. Awesome. Curtis, what do you have for us? Well, let's see. Only two, huh? Well, <laughs> um, first, the, the motive, I think, matters. And mm -hmm. it all comes, and Shadanki actually mentioned this, it all comes back to love. So, you know, our 
our obedience is out of our love and gratitude mm-hmm. to the Lord. Our holding one another accountable is out of love because we want yeah. the best for one another. We want one another to experience the fullness of the, you know, the life that the Lord intends for us and so on. So keeping love uh, central, I think, is uh, a key in movements. Um, the oh, you invariably hear a lot of uh, emphasis on quantity in movements, but the quantity <laughs> actually arises from quality. And um, we talk a lot from you know the very earliest um, equipping that we're doing of people referring to being a disciple worth multiplying. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, we tend, you know, people who are making disciples tend to make disciples who look a lot like they do. And um, sometimes I, I wonder if it's God's mercy that he doesn't answer our pr- our prayers for big revival, if it would just mean making more disciples mm-hmm. like what we've got. Mm-hmm. You know, so the quality is... Um, the, the important basis for quantity. Um, we've talked about, you know, involving every disciple. So there's multiple ways that we try to equip every disciple. Uh, I think maybe both Shadonk and Josh may have mentioned um, kind of the self-feeding idea in one way or another. But four particular areas we focus on is interpreting and applying scripture. Um, prayer, which includes as 50% of prayer is listening. Mm-hmm. So equipping every disciple to be able to recognize God's voice. And, um, you know, that's, that's a huge part mm-hmm. of movements. Um, body life, understanding how we're designed to function together and then responding well to persecution and suffering. There's a huge amount in Scripture about how God intends to bless us and glorify His name and advance His kingdom and all of these things through suffering, because it's an upside-down kingdom in many ways. Mm -hmm. And many of those blessings are contingent upon our appropriate response to the suffering. They're not automatic. And so coaching every disciple to recognize how God can bless and our appropriate response that will cooperate with him. We work on equipping every disciple in um, understanding sort of two spheres, their ongoing network of relationships and everybody else with an emphasis on the least, the last, and the lost. Mm -hmm. And understanding sort of typical patterns and tools that can help them be effective in both of those spheres. Um, the reproductive patterns that Shiganki talked quite a bit about were very specific in coaching people how to coach others in a way so that the DNA can be faithfully reproduced. Right. You know, the obedience that I talked about in the plenary session yesterday with, uh, you know, knowledge and obedience or application and passing on or sharing being kept in balance and that being a path to maturity over time. So these would be, you know, a few of the ways that we focus on equipping every disciple like um, Josh was talking about. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. I know that's a lot. So I want to allow space real quick for maybe two follow-up questions. If somebody's got a question, please just raise your hand and we'll let you, we'll let you ask that. Okay, go ahead, right here. Uh, well, you said body life and moved on to responding well through suffering and persecution, but I didn't catch anything to put next to body life. Yeah. So what do you got for that? So we have limited time. So mm-hmm. like two of the first things we'll do with a brand new believer, one is sort of uh, alert them to the one another construction in Scripture. You know, we're to love one another, we're to bear one another's burdens, we're to forgive one another, and so on. And since they're reading or listening to 25 to 30 chapters of Scripture a week, that starts to um, 
sensitize them to understanding how we are to relate to one another in the body. And one of the first passages that we um, focus on with new believers, you know, within just the first short time is um, one of the spiritual gifts passages. So that could be Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, or 1 Peter 4. Um, and for new believers, my favorite would probably be either the 1 Corinthians or the Romans passages so that they begin to understand the interdependent design of the body and also the responsibility for equipping one another so that we all have responsibility, you know, in all of those areas, but each of us has areas where we're particularly gifted to equip others in those and so that they can begin understanding some of those dynamics. So that would be two practical first steps. Okay, good. One more question before we move on to the next one that I've got. Go ahead. So, different cultures, India, Africa, and Catholics, do we go just with the Bible and teach the Bible? Or we spend time to de deconstruct some of their cultural and religious beliefs that might conflict with the Bible? Okay, this is a good question. I'm going to repeat it real quickly for the recording. Um, the question is, in different cultures, do we need to spend time deconstructing maybe the culturally held beliefs, or do we just go straight to Scripture? What do you guys want to take a stab at that, since you've all worked in areas where there probably is some deconstructing that happens? How does that happen? Yeah, I think what, that's one of the, for me, is a, that's one of the mission and mindsets that has been, that has been a problem. It's, when you go to a culture, you know, there are times we, we, when we leave a culture, Coming from our old culture, we come with this cultural mindset that I'm going to meet people that I'm really going to teach and coach them how to do this. There are times you'll be surprised that if you don't, if you're not careful, they'll end up teaching you and coaching you. I think part of what everybody should do when you first go to a culture, even if you know everything, you pretend you don't know. First, you have to be a, a great listener. Listen to them. Just listen. Even if you know. And that's where the old missionary mindset made a lot of mistakes. They come, they already know the answer, everything. And all you have to do, listen to them, and they feed you. Yeah. But you listen. Yeah. But also the second thing is that you learn from them. What are you learning? In the process of learning, you will know exactly the things that are, you know, what, the, what is the center that holds them. Yeah. You know that. In some of the cultures, it is something that holds, that's the center that holds it. In other cultures, it is even secret society. Some is Islamic belief. Some other cultures, Hindu. Something that holds them together. When you learn, you listen and learn, you will know. Because while you are doing this, you are also listening, as he said, to the Holy Spirit. What is God telling you right now? But the third thing is that you always, at the end of the day, because when you listen and learn from people, they have this confidence and trust that you are really genuine in your heart, and that creates relationships. And out of every good relationship, you can begin to tell your story or the story of the gospel. And that's where they are open up for you to teach them or coach them because they have enough confidence in you. I will give you a simple illustration. Um, for example, one of our entry strategies when we go to, we've done this in the Middle East, where you have a lot of young people. Soccer in Africa is, is another religion. Soccer, um, um, football. So it's a whole religion. So when we go to communities and we see a lot of young people and we want to create this relationship, we listen to them, they will tell you they love soccer. So what we do is that we have a trained soccer team. Everything for me in the South we have. We have guys who are professionals and we'll go to the communities like in Sierra Leone or if we are going to Liberia or Guinea, we'll take our soccer team. But we've already, because we want to create a relation, listen to them, learn from them, we play the first soccer match. We always lose the first match. <laughs> and we lose the first match on purpose. Because the purpose here is that we are listening, we are learning, and we want to create a relationship. So we play a very good match. But our goalkeeper and the defense line know exactly what to do. <laughs> Secret is up. At this point. We've given it away. Yes. They know exactly what to do. And in, in our own context, actually in the African context, 
when you are playing a tribe, like you go to a lost tribe and you are playing them, it's a whole tribe you are playing. In a soccer match, it's like everybody's involved. I have seen older women who don't know anything about football. They will come to support their tribe. They don't even know the, the rules of the game. So if their tribe win, it is a tribe. And they will dance. They will dance until late in the night, <laughs> dancing. And then we ask for another match. We tell them, well, now you've won this first match. When are we going to have another match? And they, you know, when somebody wins, they have this confidence that you come again, they will defeat you. Our guys are really good. When we come the second time, we trash them very seriously. Like seven to nothing, six to nothing. Now they are eager for another match. In between this process, what we are doing is that we are learning, we are listening, but also we want to create a relationship that will help us to begin to teach. We call that coach. sandbagging in America, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and so, then on that, on that second match, you bet a lot of money, doesn't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it? But what I'm saying is that really some of the things we've struggled in the past, because we have gone to places where for 50 years there have been no Jesus option. They wanted nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with the gospel. But today, those tribes, those groups, the Lord just opened up. So we, we don't go there with the idea that we're going to teach them they don't know anything. We know they are lost. That is clear. We know they know Jesus. But we also go with the idea that what can we learn from them that will help us bring this gospel to them. One quick personal example from us in India. So there, I've, seen, I've seen people do this two different ways, okay? With, with like, for example, with Hindus in India, okay? So um, a couple a couple common beliefs among among the Hindu faith. One is in karma, not sin. So you have good karma and bad karma, and that follows you from life to life. Okay. So if you had three lives ago that you had a bunch of bad karma, that's still stacked up against you in this life right now. Okay. So it's like multi like because you have multiple lives that you're living, and your karma follows you every life, right? So there's good karma and bad karma that follows you. And then they believe in, in reincarnation that whole time. So the whole time it's stacking and stacking and stacking until you get a good, enough good karma, okay, in order to go be with heaven with God when you die, okay? But that takes like a million births or something crazy, okay? So, so they believe in this karma idea and this reincarnation idea. We have heard a ton of people try to come to a Hindu and argue and argue and argue about reincarnation, about karma, about all this stuff. That is their belief system that they hold so tightly and dear, okay? We stop doing that, man. It's like, because good news to a Hindu is that Jesus takes all of their bad karma and gives them all good karma right now today, okay? Mm -hmm. All your bad karma from every past life. I don't care if they believe they had 100 lives or one life. This is their one life right now, and we want to reach them right now, okay? And so we, we, we quit arguing about that because it doesn't matter. We don't need to deconstruct that right away. Let the Holy Spirit take care of that later. Mm -hmm. We want them to know the good news, right? And then reincarnation, here's the best news. Because they have perfect karma now, this can be their last life. And crazy thing, Jesus says you're born again, okay? So you literally can be born again into your last life right now, okay? And then when you die, you get to go straight, be with heaven with God, uh, be in heaven with God. You don't need to worry about coming back as some other thing later, okay? You, you're, you're done. That is a beautiful set of good news for a Hindu person. We're not deconstructing anything. We're giving them good news in what they hold dear, right? Then later, we'll talk about all that stuff, and we'll get through that or whatever, but you don't need to do that right away. You get what I'm saying? And so we're just bringing into what, what are the truths that they hold dear right now, and let's speak gospel truth into that, and let's let Jesus begin to you know clean some things up in the process. Um, and, and the thing to add to that, we really don't need to be the Holy Spirit. <laughs> mm. We are not qualified to be the Holy Spirit, and we are not the Holy Spirit. I think in the past, what has happened is that people have tend to be the Holy Spirit, and we are not, and we are not qualified to be one. We allow the Holy Spirit to do the job that the Holy Spirit can do. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our job is to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. If you ask you to be quiet, just be quiet. Yeah. And just do what you've been led by the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, all of what we are talking of this control, he will do all of that. But you do it as he uses you or the team as you begin to teach and coach and disciple and mentor. The scales begin to come up from their eyes gradually. Yeah. 
And then you begin to see how they respond to the gospel. But I always say, don't be the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's good. Um, I think a few relevant things to keep in mind um, are first, every culture has good things and bad things, things that are consistent with biblical truth and worldview and things that are not. And so um, ultimately, obviously, if we're successful in making a high quality disciple, they have kingdom culture and it will be countercultural, you know, to wherever they are, to wherever they're starting. And so, you know, ultimately there will have to be deconstruction. You know, the question is when, when does that take place? Because right. it is a gradual process. Yeah. We do also need to remember we have to start where they are. So um, both of them made comments that assumed that, that it makes a message makes no sense to them if it doesn't start with their current worldview. And then we are trying to move them, yeah. you know, yeah. to a correct worldview. So again, yes, deconstruction does happen, but it is a process yeah. and it takes place over time. And um, there was one other major point. Oh, just um, the, I think you're probably familiar with the illustration that um, in, in the U.S., when people are trained to identify um, counterfeit currency, the first hundred hours of their training, they're only exposed to genuine currency. And they study it so thoroughly, so carefully, that immediately when they see a counterfeit, even though they've never seen one before, they can tell, whoa, this is different. And that's a good way to think about how to at least start um, especially if it's cross-cultural, because you aren't thoroughly familiar. If, if, if you're in a cross-cultural situation, you're not thoroughly familiar with what they currently believe, but you can be confident in what truth is. So starting with just presenting biblical truth, and then maybe over time later, you can be specifically addressing some of those aspects of their culture that are particularly, you know, out of line. So I don't know if those help, but those are kind yeah, of... Yeah, so factors. maybe give a vivid example. We, when you go to, we, we have what we call our entry strategy and our exit strategy. And then wherever we are going, when we, of course, we know the tribe, we do all the studies about the tribe. When we go there also, we try to do an assessment of, if it's an African traditional, actually a voodoo culture, you find out that you see there are all these voodoo gods and shrines all over the place. Some families who have in their back houses, they have all of this. Now we will literally take, take record of that. How many shrines we found in that community? How many voodoo houses we found? If it's a Muslim, how many mocks? And is there any Jesus option here? We realize there's no church, nothing. Now we take all this assessment. It's for a record so that we are able to see how the gospel, when it comes in, to, to what the gospel is doing. Now we have seen in voodoo villages, we come in and then we begin the process, create the relationship, we start the story and then the discipleship begins. I have seen in six months, you begin to see how this, this voodoo houses disappear on their own. We don't tell them, mm. put it away. But the world, as they interact with the world, their disciple, it begins to disappear. Yeah. And with time, we have seen some villages, you go around, you will not find any voodoo house, and we ask them, how come we are not seeing anything? They said, you brought the word of God. And we realized that the thing we were doing wasn't right. So they are now reacting based on the word to what is happening within their environment. So you see that it's genuine and you are not imposing on them. And they are able to replicate that in their in other communities when they go there because they see that it's coming from the heart and the word of God is contending with them. Curtis, you said something um, in what you were sharing. You said that every culture has, uh, and I don't want to get this wrong, every culture has things that are maybe consistent with a biblical worldview, possibly, and things that are not consistent with a biblical worldview, including very much our own. So I want to read a question that is kind of a conglomeration of actually what several people have asked. Would I ask you guys 
uh, today um, as, as we're talking here. And it's looking, focusing in specifically on the North American culture. And it's a question about the existing barriers that you all notice to movement practice that exists here in North America, that maybe we could get some insights of what stands between us, the North American church, and movement, whether they're culturally rooted, so rooted within the, the culture of the world, or maybe even rooted within the culture of the church. So could you guys each spend a, a couple of minutes talking through that? I know it's very, it's very short to say just a couple of minutes on this because there's so much that probably could be said here. You guys can go ahead because you know. Yeah. Um, so a few things come to mind. Um, one is our view of individuality as opposed to corporate identity um, is not only ex you know kind of on one extreme end of the scale, but it's definitely out of sync with scripture and. Um, that's a significant um, factor, particularly in trying to catalyze movements. Um, Repeat, second, please. What's that? Repeat, please, individuality. Repeat. And yeah, versus uh, uh, having an appreciation of corporate identity. Um, secondly, um, our view sort of in the secular spiritual divide, it's like we we have this bifurcation between that's a, a secular issue and that's a spiritual issue rather than having a more holistic view. That so not having a spiritual worldview? Yeah, a non-spiritual worldview. That'd be a great way to put it. Um, that's definitely you know, not biblical and definitely mitigates against multiplying disciples. Could you um, give an example? Yeah, so let, let me give a specific subset of that. Our concept of time, how we spend time. Okay, so this is time that I set aside for my work. This is, side, this is time I set aside for my vacation. Both of those would be non-spiritual maybe. This is time when I go to church. Okay, that's spiritual. This is, you know, whatever rather than understanding again holistically that all of life is spiritual <laughs> you know it's all gods in a sense um actually i had four that i shared this morning because this yeah, question yeah. came up but yep. in order to give time <laughs> yeah. to the other guys maybe i'll just stop with those two and yeah and if, can come if, back that's right if one later. of these guys doesn't say it then let's come back to it for yeah. sure yeah good Right. No. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd say, I mean, there, there are definitely quite a few barriers that, and we have them in every culture. So this, it's not the same barriers, but every culture has barriers to multiplication of movement. Um, and Satan intentionally set those up, sets those up because the last thing he wants are thousands of disciples multiplying <laughs> across the nation. He doesn't want that whatsoever. Um, and so I would say a couple that, that just are off the top of my head. Again, we could go in a lot of these, like Curtis said. Um, one of them is, uh, I'd, say, I'd say control. Um, and so our desire to control outcome is, or, or try to control outcome in, in a Western uh, culture, is, especially a Western church culture, is a major barrier to movement. And so... Um, every movement across the world is decentralized, empowering people, releasing authority, releasing power, and you can't do that with high levels of control. Um, I heard a guy say once, uh, you know, you may have, some of you have heard me say this before, but he said you can have control or you can have a movement of God. You can't have both, right? So pick which one you want. Or you can have control or you can have influence and impact. Which, which one do you want, Right. And so it's, it's, not, it, it's not the same. And so when we decentralize things and release authority and release power, that's going to break down that stronghold of control because we're releasing control, like Shadanke said, letting the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit, letting Jesus be king, right? Um, he is the head of the church. This is his church, not ours, right? These are his people, not ours. Let him be Lord. Let him be king. And let's try to empower and equip and coach and mentor and help in any way that we can. So control is definitely one huge barrier. I would say as well, which Curtis mentioned this, 
um, is just excessive busyness. I mean, we pack our schedules so tight that it is so hard to find time to do the rhythms that we know we need to do, right? And so, man, when you, when you heard me say earlier that some of our guys are praying a couple hours a day, you're like, man, I can't even, I don't even have five minutes to think. How am I going to pray for two hours, you know? Or like we've got guys that every day they're out in the harvest sharing the gospel every single day and they're working full time. Oh, how do they do that? Like, what does that look like? How do they have time to do that? It's because they're intentionally putting these things in their calendar, like the old Stephen Covey stuff of uh, big rocks first, right? Well, what are your actual big rocks? Uh, because in, when we get so busy, we don't have time to actually do what Jesus has called us to do. We're missing some pretty big rocks in our lives, right? And here's the crazy thing that hit me. This is, this is me, guys, okay? Maybe I'm the only one in this room with this problem. I highly doubt it, but maybe, okay? I know I find time to do the stuff I really actually want to do. It's crazy, but if I've got a show on Netflix I really want to watch, I somehow figure out how to have a half hour to watch it, okay? I don't know, you know, whether it's in the bathroom or before bed or wherever, I'm watching that show, you know what I mean? So if, if it's something that is actually truly important to us, we will fight through our busy schedules to find time to make it happen. But the things that we really don't care about much, who, that are not actually big rocks in our lives, we pretend they are, we would verbally say they are, but our actions and our rhythms of life show differently, okay? And so our excessive busyness and control are going to be two of the main... We've got to... So in the West, we don't only need to die to our, you know, our, our, uh, you know, ourselves and our, our, you know, all these other things. We need to die to our calendars. I mean, we've got to, we've got to lay our calendar on the altar of God and say, God, how do you want me to spend my time? How do you want me to spend my days? What do my rhythms of life need to look like, Right. And we've got to die to that, lift it up to Jesus, and, 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 and sacrifice all of that for the sake of the kingdom multiplying. So control and, and excessive busyness are, are major barriers, for sure. Yeah, let, let me add the other thing that I see is, uh, is, is a lot of knowledge base rather than obedience base. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people here, it's just a lot of knowledge, a lot of knowledge. And people hardly try to obey what they know. So it's a major problem to, to, to see disciple making movement happen. Because, um, because people have so much of this knowledge, it affects the way they even, because it affects their obedience level. And if we're going to come, there's nothing we can sacrifice on the altar of obedience. Obedience is the main thing. Yeah. God cannot take anything secondary to obedience. Yeah. You have to obey him or forget about it. Yeah. So it's an obedience-based Disciple making. Yeah. I obey the Lord. It's all what I know. Knowledge is good. That's why there are times, you know, I refer to some of the knowledge as a PhD. Permanent head damage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so we have a lot of people with a PhD degree, you know, permanent head damage. They have all this knowledge, but it's, it's just destroying them. It's not allowing them to obey the word of God. And so as a result, it's difficult for them to see if you make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. So it's, it's, a, it's a major issue we see here. And um, also, it's the because it's also knowledge-based, that's why a lot of people don't really depend on God. De they depend on their knowledge, what they know, their, what they have in their accounts, and all the possession around them. They say, I, I have everything. So they're not depending on the Holy Spirit. And, and this is God's business. And if it is God's business, we have to do it God's own way. Simple. We can't do God's business our own way, by our own corporate mindset. We do it God's own way. The Bible is the manual for his business. Mm -hmm. And so we have to look at that manual and see what it says and depend on the Holy Spirit, which is the catalyst to help us do what we are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. When these things are absent, then we just have a talking shop. We just talk and we, we are like um, in soccer. I know soccer more. In soccer, you have people who warm up on the touchline. They will have all the jazz. They're warming up for 90 minutes. They don't go into the field. They're just warming up. They never get into the field to participate. So we have to jump into the field. It's very important that even if we know, we pretend we don't know, we go to God and submit to God. I want you to lead me, to use me. God, 
I just want you to direct me. I want to follow your step. But, you know, Saul knew so much. He, he was highly educated. But at the end of the day, he had to submit all of that to God so that the Lord will use him. So it's very important. I have so many illustrations I will give you because I see it every day. Um, the first time I came to the United States, like my, I was in San Jose. We came for a meeting. And I stayed in the house of, we were staying in different homes. So I stayed in the house of a guy who, he was, I mean, he's a very successful businessman. But now you see, because he knew I, came, I come from Africa, in his mindset, he thought, I really don't know anything. So he, he took me around. His house was really beautiful. So he was taking me around this house. And he was even teaching me, this is a switch. You put it on and you put it off. Now, I followed him around the house. I never said a word. You know, he took me to the bathroom. And he said, this is the toilet. You press this thing. And the water flows. And the pressing the water flows. I was just shaking my head. And he took me to this jacuzzi. And he said, this is called jacuzzi. You know, you get in there, you press all the buttons. I was just, I did not say a word. Now, because for me, I know that this man, his knowledge is very limited. That's why I know he's thinking, and you know, in Africa, maybe people, so I didn't say a word, but we became friends. Two years after, I invited him to come to Sierra Leone. <laughs> and I put him in a room that has a jacuzzi. <laughs> after two days, he came out to me, he, met, he came outside and said, Shudanke, I feel so embarrassed. I said, what's the problem? He said, I feel so bad. I never knew there are lights all over this place. You know, I didn't know that you have the same switch that we have. Now, the issue here is that that created our relationship. Now, for him, he felt embarrassed, but I used that as a relationship to begin to disciple him about the world. He thought he had this knowledge, but and because of his knowledge, he really thought that the whole world is, is not knowledgeable. So I think that is the posture a lot of us take when it comes to do with disciple making. You know, we think we have this knowledge, pool of knowledge, and nobody else has it. And so we are not able to even depend on the Holy Spirit. So we are really saying to God, go learn from me. I have so much knowledge that God, I will even teach you how to do this thing. At the end of the day, we realize that all what we do is not able to transform hearts and create movements. So it is very important. And the last thing I would say is faith. The level of faith you need to create movement. It's a faith that you need to believe God. I call it the conquering faith. You have to believe God. The Hebrews 11. You have to believe God that God can do all things. That with God all things are possible. You come to that point to believe God that he can do all things. And that is where we also have problems. And what affects us is our knowledge. And if you have that type of knowledge, then you are not able to carry on in faith. Now, I will tell you, I will challenge anyone in this place that if we have few people that are ready to obey and submit to God, five years, ten years down the road, there will be movements in this country. I believe that. Yeah. Because, you see, the problem is that we, we see things from our own eyes the way we see it in our knowledge. But I see things from God's own perspective. Mm -hmm. If God, you know, could bring a change in Nineveh, then that same God sits on the throne. Yeah. All is looking for men and women who are obedient enough and willing to have what I call even the baby-like faith, the most seed faith, and say, God, I don't know anything. I lean on you. Yeah. The Lord respects people who obey him. And he can do mighty things to few people who are ready mm. than thousands of people who are not ready. Yeah. And that is my conviction. Yeah. 15 years ago, I, I was talking to senior pastors when I started coming to the state. I told them, you know about discipleship. They told me, Shudanke, forget about it. It's not going to happen here. Just, just even for, don't even measure, just forget about it. But we kept, we have been praying for more than 10 years for this nation. I'm, I'm very, we are very intentional. We bring the American flag, flag down. Thousands of people praying. And there are times we pray, God, if you need to shake the foundation of the church in America, shake their foundation, that they will wake up and know that you are God. Some people have never, they don't know anything about America, but we just pray and believe God. 
So we need to approach God. I tell people, and I will say it here, and I will shut up. He's the only one who specializes in impossibilities. He went to the school of impossibilities. Went to the university of impossibilities. Studied impossibility and graduated degrees in impossibilities. What man cannot do, God can do. And with that, I believe, if we have few obedient people here who are ready to say, God, use us as instruments of change, who are ready to go down their knees and believe God, I'm telling you, there will come a time that we will see movements happening in this nation. That's good. Okay, so that's kind of the, the barriers we're seeing, maybe some of the negative. Uh, we've got seven minutes left. Could we close with each of you giving maybe one thing that you're seeing in the North American landscape that is actually bringing you hope and encouragement that maybe there will be movements that take root here? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> I'm telling <laughs> you. All right, we'll see you guys later. We're going to walk Josh. We're probably not walking you to the stage. Yeah. We're walking yeah. you to the door at this point. But, uh, no. no, there's a lot. There's a lot. Um, honestly, like a, on a, I have, post-COVID, we have seen a, a hunger and a desperation and a desire to lay everything down on the altar for the sake of a move of God in this nation, unlike we've ever seen um, ever uh, in, in America since I've been around. I'm young, though, so these guys may be able to say something different. But, um, and so we, we are seeing people that are hungry. They're willing, to, um, they're willing to make whatever change necessary in order to see a move of God in this nation. They're beginning to pray more. They're beginning to fast more. They're beginning to ask the right questions. They're beginning to lead from the front. I see senior pastors, guys, that have never, like in, in 20 or 30 years of ministry, led somebody to faith personally. Not, I'm not talking from the stage. I'm talking out on the street who are now going out and looking for lost people, prayer walking their cities, meeting people far from God, leading them to Jesus. Man, like when you start getting leaders leading from the front like that and showing their people what it looks like, you're on the verge of a movement. When you have people starting to get on their knees more every single day, you're on the verge of a movement, man. When we see churches, so there's a, there's a buddy of mine in Denver, Colorado, that has seen 800 house churches started, simple churches started in the last two years. And it was 100 like two years ago and just exponentially just growing because they have a bunch of people like Shadanke just said that are willing to believe God that he's going to do something awesome. They're willing to get on their knees more and they're willing to get out into the harvest more. And so when you spend more time on your needs and more time out in the harvest, man, you are on the verge of a movement. And, uh, and we're seeing that all over America. And so I was just joking. Absolutely. There, there, uh, there, are, there are hundreds and thousands of people across the country that are making shifts in their churches. And we're talking churches that are 50 people all the way to the churches that are like, you know, seven or 8,000 people making shifts in their, in their leadership in order to set the stage for a massive multiplication movement. And I believe Shinnok is right. We're, we, are, we are on the verge of seeing incredible multiplication in this nation. And so leave filled with hope and courage to take the first step in your life in order to see that happen in your communities. Because God's on the move. And he's going to do it. And so, you know, either jump on or get out of the way. You know what I mean? Because he's moving. I mean, he's moving in some big ways. Absolutely. Yeah. I think to add to that, I really see, again, it's the same thing, the holy discontentment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because, um, I mean, people are really discontent with what they already, that they have. They're discontent. Because people ask me a lot of those questions. Questions that they have not asked me for years. I see people asking me those questions. I see people hungry. Like, I have received a lot of teams in Sierra Leone. I mean, these are they are coming from churches where you will never have expected those type of churches to even go yeah. out. We see your pastors leading the mission team mm -hmm. and coming back. You know, I have seen what is happening in their churches. I've been called by churches and they were not ashamed as a student. Look, we really don't know anything. Just like you take a kindergarten, start with us from kindergarten where we, we are supposed to start. We might be 80 years old as a church, but just let's go to the elementary and begin. And we have started, I mean, that is a lot of brokenness and humility to see people, pastors with degrees and big churches mm -hmm. doing that. Yeah. Going back, you know, to sailing, coming back, I have seen them weep. Yeah. They literally cry in the mission field. Yeah. What they see. Yeah. See ordinary people doing. They cry. They tell me things. I mean, I have seen a senior pastor. I came out. He had this big church. And when he went to sailing, after going through for two days, he could not sleep. He was just crying. 
one night he just called me. He knelt down and said, Shudanke, look, forget about what you have seen. You know, you go to me, you see, in America. I just want you to lay hands on me. I want to see this happen. And I prayed for him. Now, he's doing the same thing. He's fasting. The last time I was here, he was sharing testimony of what God is doing. So I believe there's a holy discontentment. And that's the right place to start. And with that, when people are broken enough, God will honor it and God will multiply it. Curtis? Yeah. Um, it's, it doesn't even require faith anymore because we're already seeing it. Yeah. yeah. So um, whether it's like out of a prevailing model church like Josh mentioned, so I trained and coached you know, that team over the mm -hmm. past couple of years, and it's not just one kind of church they're playing. They, they have a bunch that are immigrant, you know, yep. ethnic. They have a bunch that are young professionals. They have a bunch that are coming out of their existing church members that yep. they had. That, and now they're impacting pastors, not only all over the state, but all over the country. And um, so that's great. Um, we've, you know, there's a, a mature movement that started from scratch by one guy who was just a small business you know guy and uh got training he and his wife started meeting in their home they planted churches they reproduced they, and now you know there's a significant network you know that's a city church and they've launched movements not only that qualify as a movement where they are you know in their city but then in other cities in the u.s they've gotten work started and they've started multiple movements in countries all over the world more than 20 nations and it just is exactly like we see overseas mm -hmm. yeah you know just starting from your home multiplying disciples developing networks of you know simple churches or house churches those city or regional churches reproducing and we're, you know, so we know it can happen here. Mm -hmm. Now it's early days. We're not mm -hmm. seeing them all over the place, but yeah. now that we've seen it, it's like Roger Bannister running the four-minute mile. That's right? right. Scientists said it can be done. Coaches said it can be done. Once he did it, everybody started breaking the four-minute mile. Yeah, and that's where we're off. We are right now in this country. Yeah, is people all the time said it couldn't happen. Okay, now. We've got good models, both starting just purely out of the harvest and starting out of a church, and we've shown it can happen. So I think we're poised to see it happen in many more places. Yeah. Can you name any of The the one he's Josh referred to is Restoration Church in Denver. Senior pastor Ron Johnson, um, and then the the One Body Network out of Tampa. Yeah, Tampa. Yeah. Tampa, Florida is the one that I referenced that's catalyzed movements all over now. Yeah. And that's with Lee Wood and Damian Gierke, uh the One Body one body Network. Okay, I'd love to keep these guys here for a long, long time, but unfortunately we, uh, we're at the end. I want to pray over us real quickly, and I want to pray what uh, really Josh prayed over India real quick. Uh, God, you're doing it there. Would you do it here? And since we're already seeing it done here some... I uh, just want to ask that God would do it through us. Let's pray. Yeah, uh, Father, I know that um, the people that have chosen to be in here this afternoon have chosen to be in here because they care. They have a burden. Father, I pray that you turn that burden into action, um, that you'll take whatever is knowledge now and turn it into obedience, that, Father, you'll do what has been happening all over the world here and that you'll do it through us. God, that it will not be in our power, but it will be in your power. And that, Father, as you do it through us, it'll be done through other everyday, ordinary disciples that will truly see movement, that, God, will, it'll be undeniable that it is you that is at work. God, that's what we want to see with our own eyes. God, would you make it happen? This we pray in Jesus' name. And amen. 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 God bless you all. Man. That was so good. I hope that you took a lot of notes. I know that I did, and I'm, I'm struggling to find the ones that I want to talk about here and mention the things that stood out to me. 
Um, they talked about the movement of prayer and fasting, about starting with five minutes. And my question is, are you doing this five minutes a day right now? I confess that I myself forget to do that. And I'm a minister of God, and that's a hard thing for me to do, and that's sad. Uh, so I confess and commit that I'm gonna do better than that, and I'm gonna make time today to pray for my country, for my friends, for my family, and uh, I hope that you will do the same. I'm just super convicted by that, and I think there, the danger here in North America is that we want a disciple-making movement so we end up using the American tools we have, branding, marketing, social media, and we just forget the simplicity of prayer. Another thing that stood out to me was somebody said, what are the truths the person that you're sharing the gospel with holds dear to them right now? How can you speak truth into that? I was fascinated hearing Josh talk about how he uses the karma language to speak into the lives of the Hindu people there in India. He uses that as a way to share Jesus with them. That that literally blew my mind. It has me kind of going down rabbit trails of figuring out what's the current worldview of just the average North American person. And how can I put Jesus into that framework? All right, y'all. Thanks for listening. We've got more track sessions coming up next. Enjoy the rest of your day. I'll see y'all later. <laughs>